If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest episode in our Bayer Tapestry series, presented by David Musgrove. Welcome to History Extra's Unravelling the Bayer Tapestry series. This is episode three. What is the story in the tapestry? I'm David Musgrove, Content Director for BBC History Magazine and History Extra. It was announced in 2018 that the Bayer Tapestry is set to return to England at some point in the next few years, as a loan from its permanent home in Bayer. That prompted me to write a book on this most famous of embroideries, with Professor Michael Lewis, head of the Portable Antiquities Scheme at the British Museum, and an expert on the tapestry, and indeed a member of its scientific committee. The book, The Story of the Bayer Tapestry, Unravelling the Norman Conquest, is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021. In this five-part podcast series, I've invited a series of tapestry experts to join Professor Lewis and I to talk about what we know about the tapestry and how we should understand it. These are a series of panel discussions, but I do drop in every now and again with little interruptions to make sure everything is clear. In this third episode, we're looking at what story is told in the tapestry and how it relates to the evidence given in other contemporary narrative sources for 1066. If you've been following the series, you'll know that in episodes 1 and 2, we've attempted to answer the questions of why, when, where, and how the tapestry was made. So it's timely, if I suppose a little tardy, to now tackle what is actually in it. Obviously we have touched on the narrative already, but the plan here is to really drill into the tapestry as a source in its own right. The experts joining Professor Lewis and myself today are Professor Elizabeth Van Houtz, Honorary Professor of Medieval European History in the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge, an expert on medieval history and Latin, and the author, among other things, of an edition and translation of the Gesta Normanorum Ducum of William of Jumiege, of which more soon. Also, we have Dr Leonie Hicks, Reader in Medieval History at Canterbury Christchurch University, and a particular authority on the Normans. Her books include A Short History of the Normans. Now, before we begin, I'm going to attempt to sketch out briefly the main elements of the story told in the Bayer Tapestry. 
You'll remember from earlier episodes, the tapestry is composed of a central frieze where the story is told in cartoon-style embroidery, sandwiched between two borders where we tend to find animals and other beasts, along with some short independent scenes which may or may not relate to the main action. The embroidery images are accompanied by short Latin captions which provide explanation, though limited, as to what is being depicted. So what does it show? The tapestry starts with King Edward the Confessor, in conversation with a man. He's not named, but we presume it's his leading earl, Harold. The year is probably 1064, again that's not actually stated, and the location, likely Westminster, possibly Winchester, again we don't know. The topic, presumably, Harold's forthcoming trip to the continent. Next, Earl Harold leaves for the coast. He goes to a place called Bosom, and from there he crosses the channel. After a short misadventure at the hands of a local lord, Count Guy of Ponteur, he ends up at the court of Duke William in Normandy. We don't actually meet William until we're about one-sixth of the way through the tapestry, which is an interesting point. The pair then head off on a military campaign against rebels in Brittany. According to the tapestry, the campaign is a success for William. We see his troops as successfully besieging several castles. Harold acquits himself well, even saving some Normans from certain death in the River Cunel, which divides Normandy from Brittany. After the campaign, Harold makes an oath of some sort to William and though it is not spelt out on the tapestry, this has been presumed to be in support of William's claim to the throne of England, that claim being based, according to the Norman chroniclers, William of Poitiers and William of Jumierge, on a supposed promise made by King Edward the Confessor to William some years earlier, probably in about 1051. The Earl promptly returns to the court of King Edward, where the aforementioned monarch proceeds to die in short order after a deathbed scene. The king is buried in his new abbey church of St Peter at Westminster, and then Harold is shown swiftly taking the throne, seemingly in breach of that oath that he made in Normandy. William gets wind of this perfidy, sets to building a fleet, assembling an army, and crosses the channel, and he waits for Harold to arrive for a fight. While the Normans bide their time, they are shown in a feast scene presided over by William's half-brother, Bishop Odo of Bayeux, building castles and burning houses. Harold duly brings his own forces to Hastings, where he is famously killed and his army defeated. The battle scene takes takes up the last quarter or so of the tapestry, and the fighting is shown in some detail. We finally see the vanquished English fleeing the field, but then the tapestry peters out in a rather a ragged fashion. So that is the basic gist of the story that's told in the tapestry. As we've discussed in the first episode, the tapestry was likely made at some point in the last third of the 11th century, which is a time when we do have other written narrative sources to turn to as well. To kick off the discussion, I asked Leonie Hicks if she could introduce us to these other main sources. I think some of the the earliest narrative sources that um, we can compare to the the tapestry are, of course, William of Poitiers' Gestical Elmi, The Deeds of of Duke William, which is the uh, biography of the Duke. Um, We've got uh, the Gesta Nomenorum Ducum, which, of course, edited by Lisbeth, and um, of of William of Schumierge. And we've also got the Carmen de Hastingai Prolio, which is a a sort of strange and and a bit of a controversial source in some respects. It's a a poem and is possibly the earliest uh, written source that deals with the, the invasion and the Battle of Hastings. And, of course, all these sources are written very much from the Norman perspective, 
um, either in the case of, of William of Poitiers' biography of the Duke, centering the deeds of Duke William, writing it in a very classicising way that stresses how great he is in comparison to Julius Caesar. But something like the Gesta Normanorum Ducum, which was originally written by William of Jumiege, um, firstly ending in, ten, in the 1050s when he dealt with William's uh, succession and establishment of his rule in the duchy and then picking up his pen again in the 1070s. On the Carmen specifically, the, the, yeah. the, that's, that is uh, an interesting source, isn't it, where there's been a lot of debate about how authentic and accurate it is. So mm-hmm. where do we stand on our sort of our, our general understanding of that at the moment? Do we C- think? Can I pass over to Lisbeth at this point, because she's actually written about <laughs> it? Absolutely. Lisbeth, tell us, tell us about the Carmen. Yeah, so the, um, the, the, the song of the Battle of Hastings um, is an um, is also a classicizing text written very much in imitation of classical poets, and um, as Leonie does said, it's an um, it really focuses on the invasion um, and then the the crossing, and unfortunately the end is missing. So we end with uh, the coronation of uh, William, but then the the text uh, ends rather uh, abruptly. Now the controversy about this this text uh, was generated um, in the 1980s by a very distinguished historian, uh, Rave Davis, who argued that this was not a contemporary source, as everyone had always thought, but that it was written as a school exercise at the beginning of the 12th century. Now, I think that since then, historians have returned to the original position uh, by saying, well, actually, this is an uh, a poem that was written probably in 1067 by a man called Guy, Bishop of Amiens, uh, not too far from Pontieu, where Harold actually was caught by um, uh, the Count of uh, of Pontieu. Um, and Bishop Guy of Amiens, why, you know, you might ask, why, why was he interested in the Norman conquest? And we, um, we think that he is one of a group of clergymen in northern France who immediately want to cash in on this marvellous um, military feat of the Duke of, of Normandy by celebrating it in writing in the hope, probably, of some sort of um, reward or compensation, which was very much the um, the custom of the time, that if you wrote a praise poem for someone, you would get a mantle or a, a, a sum of money. Um, and the other thing to know about uh, Guy, Bishop of Amiens, was that he, a few years after he wrote the poem, um, had be, was invited by uh, Matilda, the wife of William the Conqueror, to um, accompany her from Normandy to England for her coronation. So he acted as chaplain to, um, to Queen Matilda. But that is very much after uh, he wrote uh, the mm-hmm. poem. It's, it's worth sort of picking up on what Lisbeth says, though, about the, the 
fact that the Carmen's unfinished, and this is a bit of a theme with the sources we're looking at today, because uh, we've mm. lost the end of the tapestry. We don't know how that originally ended, though people have speculated it might have been with the coronation of William. But also, William of Poitiers left the Gesta Galelmi unfinished. He stopped writing. Audrey tells us that he, he put down his pen, sort of took some kind of vow of silence, or decided he couldn't continue uh, for whatever reason. And we've also lost the beginning of the Gesta Galelmi. So we're very much dealing, in some respects, with incomplete stories as well as um, the the gaps that we perceive that would have been filled in very easily by contemporary viewers or readers um, of the tapestry and the narratives. So those are, are the sort of the the sources that you would describe as Norman or, or pro-Norman perhaps mm. uh, it, it, they might fit in that category. What about the ones that would be uh, seen as more pro-English? Um, Lenny, do you want to jump in and, and, okay. and, and right. talk um, us through that a bit more? So our our earliest English source dealing um, with the events of 1066, probably the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but it doesn't give us a lot of detail, the various different versions. It's it's skipped over, it's mentioned briefly, it's clearly deeply traumatic. The D version, um, which is a, a northern version of the Chronicle, talks about how William went back across to Normandy in 1067 and left uh, his half-brother Odo and William Fitzosborne behind. And they, they built castles and depressed the wretched folk. And afterwards, everywhere it grew much worse, says uh, um, the author of that particular version. So it's not until the beginning of the 12th century that we find... Um, Chroniclers with a more English interest like Edmer of Canterbury and then a bit later on William of Malmesbury, Henry of Huntingdon, actually writing and trying to explain what happened in the mid-11th century uh, and thinking about, you know, why why did this, this event happen? Why was uh, King Harold and his brothers and all these people killed? Uh, and this is where you begin to get um, narratives about the... Normans being um, instruments of God's judgment, for example, in Aidmer, um, with William of Malmesbury's emphasis on the king being responsible for the sins of his people. So, you know, Harold not being a, a great king and therefore not being you know, being actually instrumental in, in causing this thing uh, to happen, this, this um, conquest to happen. Um, and very much the idea of God's judgment um, coming through. And then, of course, we also have Audrey Vitalis, who was actually writing in Normandy, um, uh, but his father was from Orléans in France and his mother was an unnamed um, English woman. And Audric himself was born and spent the first 10 years of his life near Shrewsbury and then was sent off to the monastery, age 10, monastery of Santa Um And although he's writing in Normandy, there are points where we can hear maybe his own voice coming through. And he's writing in the second decade, this book, in the second decade of the 12th century. And he uses William of Poitiers extensively for his narrative. But there are times, for example, um, after the Harrying of the North, where we find maybe Audric actually saying, well, this was so bad, I cannot I cannot forgive the, the, the King William for this. You know, this is something that will have to be dealt with by God, and this was terribly bad. Um, so, so the English sources don't really start coming to terms with, with events and start trying to explain them until much later, mainly in the, in the early 12th century onwards. Thank you. Um... What about the life of King Edward? Have we? Did, did you mention that? Oh no, I didn't mention the life of King Edward. Oh, what I forgot about that? <laughs> what, what about that? <laughs> no, that, no, that, that one seems, the life of King seems Edward. Quite important. Yeah, 
Um, well, it is, especially as, as we can link one of the scenes in the life of King Edward directly with one of the scenes in the, in the tapestry. So I've, I've got it on my list. So I just forgot to mention it. Um, so that you mentioned in your summation of the narrative, the death of, of um, King Edward. And in that scene, we have Edward lying in bed all wrapped up um, and various figures. And at the bottom of the bed, there's a very heavily veiled woman. Um, and it looks like she has um, Edward's feet in her lap. And in the, the Vita Edwardi, it specifically says that his wife Edith did this to, to help warm his, his feet. And what we've got there is possibly a reference to the scene in the Vita Edwardi where Edward granted the kingdom to um, Harold and said that he was to, to take care of the kingdom and also Edith. Um, and this might be what's replicated in that scene on the tapestry. Now, the Vita Edwardi um, was uh, another one, another poem and seems to have been completed either side of um, the conquest. Um, so it started before the conquest, maybe 1065, and completed after. And there's a shift in tone um, from, from the early part to the, the later part, where it becomes a bit more memorialised and commemorates the events that have happened. Well, I just want to, uh, to add to Leone's um, uh, story about the, the life of Edward, that it is actually, it's a combination of prose and poetry. Mm. So it's, it's, an, um, it, it's quite an, a conventional life in Latin of a king, but it is the poetry, and Leone is absolutely right, it's the poetry within that text that give an uh, and that adds an emotive tone to the whole text and particularly a lament on the loss of uh, members of the um of, of Harold's um family. Um so it's Edith, the Queen of Edward, who probably commissioned the text. Well actually she did commission the text. Um, who really wants to get across that um, her family actually did a pretty good job in England. And she's trying to come to terms with the loss of three or four of her brothers who were killed uh, at, um, at Hastings. It's time to take a pause for a second. We've just heard Elizabeth there talking about Queen Edith, and Lenny mentioned Edith earlier in the context of the tapestry deathbed scene of Edward the Confessor as well. We'll hear more about Queen Edith in episode four, but just as a quick reminder, Edith was not only the Queen of King Edward, but she was also the Earl Harold Godwinson's sister, and thus connected to both the monarch and his leading noble family. The fact that Edward and Edith's marriage was childless left the succession vacuum that was resolved eventually by the bloody events of 1066, following the death of King Edward at the start of that year. So, we've heard about some of the main sources that complement or perhaps contradict the biotapestry. The next question then is, which, if any of those sources, seem to be following the same sort of narrative line as the tapestry? I asked Michael Lewis to give an answer to that. Yeah, I mean, that is a really tricky question, actually, because I think there are some, as I've already been kind of spoken about, that do seem to almost directly feature somehow in the tapestry. So, um, obviously, William of Poitiers and... Um, and also the Vita Edwardi Regis. So they're the two main ones, I think, that seem to appear. There's a, there's a kind of a, a slight reflection of Edema as well, which is a bit odd, of course, because that's later, and that that's that's kind of quite strange. But I think the thing that, for me, that is kind of interesting about all of these sources um, is that whilst we tend to, as you kind of suggested at the beginning, divide them into kind of two kind of groups, the 
kind of pro-Norman and the pro-English, um, if you like. Also, it's like um, has already been discussed as well, the fact that they are quite different in their style. Um, and, you know, when it's a chronicle, I think it's quite easy for a sort of 21st century reader to sort of take it as more gospel because it's quite direct and terse and sort of factual. Um, and then to be sometimes a bit less believing of these ones that are a bit more poetic because there's so much rhetoric in there and all that sort of stuff. But it's very complicated, actually, because you kind of get snippets in all of them and to try and find your way through those sources and to, to the extent to which they kind of relate to the tapestry. I mean, essentially, they're all saying roughly the same thing, but in quite different ways with quite different uh, ways in as well. Um, so it becomes quite a complicated sort of mix. But for me, it's Poitiers and the Vito Edwardi that seem to be the ones that kind of reflect most what's being said in the tapestry, although in a different way. Um, Elizabeth, what, what what do you think about that? I'm interested in the, in the idea of which sources may have influenced which others. Did did whoever um, came up with the biotapestry narrative have access to any of these other narrative sources, do you think? Yes, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure that that is uh, the case. But obviously, the, the designer of the biotapestry made his or her own um, choices. Um, I think... Both um, my colleagues are absolutely right that William of Poitiers is is quite um, close to the uh, to the bio tapestry, um, and um, the Vita Edwardi um, as uh, as well. And of course, they apart from the Vita Edwardi, they 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 all seem to give. Um, precedence more to a sort of Norman version of events than uh, that they reflect necessarily the um, emotions and thoughts of the English, except of course for the uh, for the Vita uh, for the Vita Edwardi. I suppose um, the, the the interesting thing there is is this whole idea of the, of the they are all telling a similar sort of story as Michael says, but the tapestry is is uh, unique in a sense in the way that it really does allow the viewer to to make their own judgments about a lot of what you see because that because it's it's telling a story through pictures and the captions are are very very spartan so um uh, Elizabeth, you, you said something quite interesting at the start there that that does tell us something about the intended audience. So do you want to elaborate a, a bit on that and tell us who who you think was uh, was was supposed to see this and how they were supposed to understand what they were what they were looking at? Well, I imagine that the um, the tapestry was hung probably more likely in an in a secular hall in an in a hall of a nobleman rather than in a cathedral but maybe I can come back to uh, to that and if I'm right in thinking that it was more an um, an aristocratic or a noble um, environment then the audience necessarily would be um the secular lords of Normandy who would um Look at the, you know, evolving story of the um, of the Norman conquest. The fact that the um, the labels are in Latin is probably a reflection that any writing at the time would be in Latin rather than in Old French. Obviously, the aristocracy itself and anyone in Normandy would speak French, but as soon as you put anything on in writing, you would do that in Latin. Also, I think the, the reason that the captions are in Latin um, 
is a way to give authenticity to the story. Um, you say that the, the captions are quite brief, but in their brevity, they convey information that the author wants to be seen as factual and trustworthy and reliable. And maybe part of that has to do with the fact that um, the designer might have envisage that obviously a contemporary audience would know the story, but that in 30, 40 years' time, a new audience will will need to know who the various people are who are being represented on the uh, on the tapestry. Um, but I think that the the audience is very much uh, in the first instance, um, you know, the, the family and the friends of the people who took part. In, in the conquest on the Norman uh, side. And maybe um, their retainers, and that you can gradually go through the social ranking of society. Um, but we shouldn't necessarily envisage that the tapestry was meant for the peasants of Normandy. I don't for a minute think that um, the um, designer of the tapestry had a mass audience of ordinary Normans in mind. You know, this was very much an elite piece of um, representation of a military achievement for an elite audience. You make a really interesting point there about the the captions being short and to the point because the author was looking to be uh, reliable and trustworthy. So that would um, uh, that drops into that that. That, that line of thought that perhaps the captions are so short that uh, it, because uh, the author was looking to allow people to, to make their own inferences, to allow the defeated English and the, and the uh, conquering Normans to sort of read their own, um, their own views into that. I don't know. Um, uh, we'll come back to you on that one, Elizabeth. But Leonie, I don't know if you've got any, any observations on, on what, the, what the captions are all about. Well, um People who are much more versed in linguistics than I am have done uh, work on the captions and spotted Old English inflections in the Latin, um, which would, you know, fit with the what you've probably discussed in previous episodes, the, the possible um, likelihood that the tapestry was made in Canterbury. Um, and so that, that there are sort of elements of, of that... Yes, it's it's telling a story of Norman triumph, but there's also elements of perhaps a non-Norman voice coming through in, in some of the spellings, um, like Kaistra at Hastings, the castle, um, and so on. Um, and I, I think, you know, Lisbeth's right that there is indeed um, a secular audience for this, but I don't think that necessarily precludes it being displayed in a in a religious context where you've got a much more, uh, you know, a mixing of, of, of people. and we, we don't really know uh, for certain how it was displayed, partly because if it was commissioned for Odo, he fell out of favour towards the end of William the Conqueror's reign and ended up in prison and, and so on and so forth. And it's only, you know, in the 15th century that get the note that it's kept in the, the treasury at Bayeux. So, but yes, this idea that there is a sort of bare bones narrative on which you could then think through and, and interpret and, and maybe engage with the tapestry is very persuasive. Um, and I, th- I think it links with a lot of the purpose of history writing, which was in some part rhetorical and to engage the emotions of people reading or hearing some of these stories. Um, and 
towards uh, the battle scene where you get the progress of William's army um, through, and it's it's demonstrated through the difference in terrain and the gait of the horses as they walk, go from a, a walk to a trot and then and so on and so forth. You, you, if you were an elite secular um, member of an audience viewing this, you, you you can almost place yourself within that narrative. Which, if it was, you know, designed for the the family and friends, close relatives of people who fought at Hastings, you know, it, it's almost not. I don't want to say, oh, because, oh, well, that's Uncle Richard. You know, he went off and fought with with William or whatever, but that they would recognise elements of their own experience within that. Yeah, Michael, where, where do you stand on on the captions? I know, uh, I know, you're a, a great fan of uh, of terse writing. So, um, so what's your yeah, what's your take I, on it? Yeah, I certainly do like terse writing. So, anything that's kind of direct and to the point suits me. And I think the tapestry, as has been talked about, you know, certainly does that. And I think, you know, I agree with um, both Leonie and Elizabeth on this that that basically um, it's to allow some sort of um, individual interpretation of what is um, being sort of shown in the tapestry. I mean, I think, as you, as you know, you know, because it's kind of, we, th- we think that it's probably produced um, fairly early on, but not in those immediate years after the Norman conquest, um, maybe it kind of, its story sort of fits an earlier period, um, although it was probably produced slightly later on. So, I mean, essentially, you know, after the Norman conquest, it seems to be fairly, sorry, after the invasion of England, it seems to be that the case that um, William was trying to kind of reconcile um, the English to to his way of thinking that sort of went kind of kind of bit wrong later on, really. So the tapestry seems to evoke this sort of period where the, the Normans were hoping the English would just accept uh, William uh, as king. Um, and so maybe you didn't really want the kind of rhetoric that you got in in um, s- sort of William of um, of Poitiers, for example, that kind of rubs it in a bit. It kind of just lets it sort of settle a bit somewhat. You can look at the events and you can see it in a fairly factual way, but you sort of know, um, if you know the story, you sort of know, well, this happened then and this happened that. And also, I think one of the points that's been made by others um, is that at the time um, of the conquest, and I think this is really important, is people perhaps had quite different views of what exactly sort of happened anyway, even in the immediate um, part of the conquest. You know, there would be lots of different takes on what had happened, how it got to this stage. I mean, I think we sometimes forget what a kind of catastrophic event it was in in many ways for the for the for the for the English, um, and what an amazing achievement it was for William. And to make sort of sense of that. Um, in their day was was quite tricky. So I think the tapestries, some in some respects, re- kind of reflects that um, by creating a narrative that you can basically follow, but you can also bring in your sort of um, own understanding or interpretation of what happened. Um, some really interesting points there about how how you understand and, and study the, the the tapestry as a historical source. I, I wonder, given that you're all um, experts in the field, when you when you approach uh, the tapestry as a as a documentary source, do you approach it in a different way than you would uh, when you're looking at uh, at uh, William of Poitiers or William Jumiège, where it doesn't have the images to go with it? How how do you how do you how do you tackle this as an analytical exercise, um, Lisbeth? What, what would your response be to that? Well, that's a that's a, a very difficult question actually to uh, to answer. Um, when I look at the biotapestry, either in modern glossy photographs or when I actually see it in the flesher, to speak, 
I'm just struck by the vividness of the images and I'm swept up in the story much more than I am by any of the written sources that um, I know quite um, quite well. But um, I think here I want to pick up something that, that Michael said is that because the written sources are very much justifying the Norman conquest, the rhetoric sometimes gets into the way of the story. Um, and that is particularly the case in um, the biography of William the Conqueror written by uh, William of Poitiers, but to a lesser uh, extent by uh, in the Carmen and in the uh, dynastic history of the Norman Dukes by William of Jumiers. So looking at the tapestry, you see this story unfolding and you cannot but be impressed by the achievements of um, William the Conqueror, and particularly, uh, you know, in the latter part of the conquest, where you see the boats being built, the um, the horses being brought into the ships, the ships crossing the channel, and then you being led through um, the real imagining of what happens on the on the battlefield, however gory and bloody it. Um, it was, and nothing is as vivid, I think, than the um, than the bio bio tapestry. Now you ask me, but how 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 we would um, rationalize this, and how methodically we then pull ourselves back from the emotion <laughs> of watching the tapestry and compare the story with other texts, and then you you basically, at least that's what I do. Uh, look at each individual scene and try to understand what goes on and then compare it with uh, similar scenes in in the written in the written sources and that is an exercise that isn't too difficult except that in most cases there is more room for further interpretation in uh, with the scene in the tapestry than there is in a written source because the written sources on the whole explain more, in my opinion, than the, um, the, the visual source of the biotapestry. Lenny, how, how do you get past the sort of the emotional, vivid power of the tapestry to, to try well, and understand it properly? The, the emotional, vivid power of the tapestry, as you put it, as Lisbeth's just um, explained, is actually one of the important parts of understanding it as a historical source for me. Um, Partly because of, of my own, where my own research interests lie, which is thinking about landscape and, and place, and of which you know, looking at the tapestry is, is superb because it's all about place. It's all about where place, where things happened. And yes, it doesn't have that explanatory element that we see in in the chronicles. But like any source, and I teach this a lot to my own students. What, what we're dealing with here um, are a series of narratives. If we, if we add the, the tapestry into our narrative chronicle category for a moment, we're dealing with a series of narratives that are overlapping, that are drawing on similar source material um, in the way that they were written or produced. Um, they're part of um, a living 
history, a, a living historical culture of the Normans. And so I think we have to see it very much w- within, within that context and comparing and contrasting with our written sources, thinking about perspective, thinking about issues of audience and issues of patronage and why there are the differences, because why there are the differences in many respects is a far more interesting question than what happened. So thinking about why an event is portrayed in a particular way on the tapestry and how that might differ, for example, in William of Poitiers' biography of Duke William, or why William Jumier didn't mention that at all in, in his, his chronicle, I think is at the key. So if you think about the beginning of the um, battle, just to give an example, if you look at all the different accounts, the battle starts in a different way in every single one. Um, whether we have uh, jugglers in, in the Carmen or trumpets and archers in, in William of Poitiers or just everybody charging in like on, on the tapestry. And it's actually thinking about that why. You know, wh- why might uh, William of Poitiers say, well, the Normans struck the first blow, like in, like in the courtroom, as if they were prosecuting a legal case. Um, so I, I think that comparison aspect is, is the best way to, to approach it. But in, in some, we would treat it like other sources, being aware of those nuances of, of patronage, audience, context, and why, why it was created. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Let's break off again for a second. Hopefully you're getting a sense here that the biotapestry is both telling a simple, straightforward story of the Norman Conquest, which at times agrees with and at times diverges from those other sources that we've been talking about, but also leaves a big old space for personal interpretation by the audience. Now that's the beauty of the combination of images and the Spartan captioning. It's not all things to all men, but it certainly does provide a space for a lot of men to take their own interpretation from what they see. And when I say men, I think a lot of researchers would suspect that the intended audience was probably skewed male. So 
That ambiguity probably made the tapestry quite a powerful tool in the 11th century, and it certainly makes it a fascinating source for historians to interrogate today. What we're going to do now is jump back into the discussion and rejoin me asking the panel to explore just a few of the key scenes in the tapestry. You'll find I get slightly disagreed with about the importance of the oath scene, which we've talked about before, where Harold makes a promise to William, and we find out more about the pivotal place of the deathbed of King Edward the Confessor and the coronation of King Harold in the narrative. And that, of course, was accompanied by the vision of the portentous comet just above his head. A quick note that Michael mentions a figure called Edgar as he discusses that coronation scene. We've not heard much about him, but this is Edgar Effling, the grandson of the half-brother of Edward the Confessor. And don't worry, we'll examine his place in the story much more fully in episode four. After that, I make a very lame dad joke, for which I apologise now. Anyway, back to it. So we haven't got time for a, a full scene-by-scene scene, uh, analysis of the tapestry, though in the book that Michael and I have written, we do have a, have a, have a crack at, at that uh, as, as best we can. Um, I suppose the, the one scene for me, and, and um, y- you can disagree with me, but the one scene where, which has uh, the most power and the most significance is the oath scene. Um, in the uh, in the in the middling section of the tapestry, and if when you're thinking about the the justification line of these the, the sort of the, the Norman uh, narrative sources, you know the justification for William's invasion being uh, a that Edward had, had gifted him the throne, and b that um, Harold had perjured himself. That scene would link in with that quite nicely. Does anyone else? Does anyone disagree that that scene is is the fulcrum of the tapestry? Well, perhaps I could, I could say that uh, we now, as 21st century historians, comparing and contrasting the various sources, think that that is an actually very crucial scene. I wouldn't necessarily say that perhaps for a contemporary audience. Yeah, well, I suppose um, that, I mean, that's a kind of an interesting point, really, because obviously the oath scene is interesting in relation to the deathbed scene, isn't it, in the Bay of Tapestry? I mean, together, they kind of tell, they kind of bring together the two kind of aspects that people sort of argue over in terms of the the English sort of succession. Um, So obviously, from a a Norman perspective, it's based on these oaths that was apparently made and and the kind of, even the historical background, the fact that, you know, Edward the Confessor was brought up in the, the the court of Duke William and et cetera, et cetera, and how that kind of plays into the sort of story. But obviously from a, a sort of uh, English perspective, the kind of immediate bequest, if that's what it was, of the kingdom um, by Edward directly to Harold as he was dying kind of trumps any oaths that were, were, were played in the past. So I suppose I'm kind of agreeing with Elizabeth really here in a way that it sort of depends on where your kind of perspective comes at it. I mean, it's certainly the case, isn't it, that in the Norman sources, they make a lot of the fact that this oath was made, um, you know, and and obviously the tapestry places the oath in a completely different place. And, and you know, obviously the sources also talk about the fact that Edward um, and Harold, it seems, kind of throw about oaths all over the place. So, um, um, and promises and all sorts of things. So, you know, maybe it's just one of the the many that we see in the tapestry that might not even be the one that's described in the in the Norman sources, the so-called Norman sources. Exactly. Harold Harold famously described as as loose with his oaths. Um, Lenny, if I, if I had to make you pick a key scene in the tapestry, oh. what 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 would it what would it be? Um. I think I'd have to go for the coronation of Harold um, and what happens immediately after with the comet. 
Because in some respects, you can have all these oaths kicking around and Harold swearing this to William and Edward granting that to, to Harold. But it's at that point where things are, in some respects, I don't want to say inevitable. His, historians are always rightly wary of the word inevitable. But it's at that point that Harold can't go back. And I, I think it's that scene that then really sets in motion William's preparations uh, and then then the invasion. And, of course, the comet being the omen of um, a transition, um, as it's seen in, in many medieval chronicles, that a comet appearing marks a transition, um, that, that that is really sort of given that, right, things, things are going to change and they're not going to end well. So if you like, that scene is flagging up what's going to happen and how this is all going to end. I would agree with that because in a sense that, you know, swearing the oath on the relics is the beginning of that story, but it's the moment that Harold, according to some sources, crowns himself you know, according to Biotrapistry, it's Sigand who, who crowns him. That is the moment that he becomes a perjurer from the perspective of the designer of the, uh, of the tapestry. That, that is the crucial moment. You know, that is when he absolutely breaks with whatever he has promised to William, um, William the Conqueror. So um, that is where the, the story of the actual military enterprise is being justified. I just wanted to, yeah, come on the, the comet side of things, because, I mean, it is the case that I and others as well, um, you know, do see the, the comet as a, a portent of change and one of, of negative change. But I guess it, it needn't be, need it? I mean, it could be. I mean, obviously, we read it in in, ret- in hindsight. It could be. I mean, the comet is just really... A representation of the, of some change, and so, for example, if the tapestry sort of had finished earlier than it does now, uh, with Harold, you know, ended if you like, with Harold being crowned king and then a comet coming along, then you'd might say, well, actually, that's just because he's you know become king, and that's what's happened. You know, all up to this point, it was that these Normans were going to potentially take the throne. And by, you know, removing, as we say in our book, you know, Edgar out of the sort of picture and, and Harold taking control to defend England from this um, aggressive invader, um, that was a, a sensible choice at the time, perhaps. Um, you know, and it, and it kind of takes us on a, a slightly different path in terms of, um, of, of the kind of monarchy. Um, I mean, obviously, what the kind of flip side is that the, the conquest, how kind of um, crazy in many ways that it was of William even to think that this was a good idea, um, was achieved. I mean, I, I don't. I still, on paper, still try to get my head around how he kind of made that happen and, and made that sort of work, because on on paper this is never going to work, is it? Really, this idea that you're going to construct this invasion fleet, come over um, to England and to, and take the kingdom, um, and you know he obviously achieves that. So yeah. So whilst I agree that that it, it is kind of probably right to see the comment as as a, a, a a sign of negative change. And of course, in that scene as well, under the um, Harold being told about the comet, you get these um, these little ships as well, which people have interpreted as a ghostly fleet, or maybe the Norman invasion fleet, or maybe the um, Harold's fleet on the self coast that was disbanded. Um, I mean, maybe that is is the reality. But I think we, again, it's the way that we always read into these sources what suits in a way 
our kind of interpretation. And again, that's what we've talked about already with the Bayer Tapestry. It just allows us to do that, you know, to the house. The cows come home, basically, doesn't it? Uh, we can read into any little scene what we want, really. I mean, as you say, on paper, Williams' enterprise seems seems crazy. On linen, however, it works very well. As a little, <laughs> little joke there. Um, uh, I'm just wondering, um, we, we should we should roll forwards a bit. I'm just... The, when most people think of the Bayer Tapestry, they probably think of the, of the famous um, battle scenes. They think of the Battle Hastings. They think of Harold's getting the the arrow in the eye, though, as we know, that's uh, that's probably um, not how the tapestry was originally um, designed to represent it. But but as I laid in my sort of slightly breathless summary of it, the, 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 the battle scene doesn't take up that much of the tapestry. It's not the whole thing. And, the, and a lot of it is, is the preamble. It's the run-up. It's the it's kind of the explanation with some curious diversions. You know, the Brittany campaign, we probably haven't got time to talk about, but why that's in there is, is seems seems a bit odd. So I suppose how important is the is the battle, Battle of Hastings in the tapestry as a scene in itself, do you think? I suppose that goes back to who the audience was, um, Elizabeth, as you were saying, you know, the the the, the audience, perhaps this uh, militaristic elite wanting to see themselves um, uh, shown in, in, uh, in, in embroidery form. Well, I think the battle is important because the battle, of course, is the manifestation of God's wish. And... In medieval thinking, if you went into a battle, and that didn't happen very often because battles usually resulted in bloodbaths and you lost too many people, so um, kings and dukes and counts would try to not rush into um, a battle. But if you, if you, if that was the only way you could decide a particular issue, then you went into a battle. The person who would emerge victorious from the battle was the person chosen by God. And therefore, you can't um, question God's um, choice of who is the victor and who is the uh, the victim. And therefore, I think that the battle is an important part of the uh, of the tapestry, not only in the mind of the Normans and the English, but we know from contemporary sources all over Western Europe that the fact that this blood battle had decided who would be the next king of England and that here was an, 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 a Norman invader who um, had the courage to cross and then won the battle, surely that is a sign that God wished it. That wasn't necessarily a sign with which everyone in Europe agreed but it's certainly it's it's the battle as a bloodbath that is mentioned in Flanders, in Germany, in southern Italy, um, in Scandinavia, in the south of France. That is what went round Europe as what happened on that faithful day in October um, 1060, 1066. And if I may add to that, um, if you look at the contemporary press of William, uh, William the Conqueror amongst contemporaries on the continent, then the only other event that is mentioned in all chronicles and annals um, in Western Europe is the First Crusade. There is no other event in 11th century Europe that is mentioned in so many different um 
uh, writings as uh, the Norman Conquest of uh, of England. So the fact that the author of the bio tapestry is absolutely determined to visualize the battle as the manifestation of God's will reflects very much what people at the time felt all over Europe, whether they agreed with it or not. Uh, Lenny, what, what, what do you think? How do you see the battle scene? I mean, as a, as a landscape uh, expert, it's got some nice little landscape features in it, hasn't um, it? I, but... the, the, the battle scene and certainly the, the movement of the, the two armies, if you like, towards um, the battlefield is, is very interesting from the way you might conceive of landscape um, in linear form. Um, because, of course, the, the tapestry is largely going in linear form. There's a couple of places where things go backwards. Like with the, we get uh, Edward the Confessor buried before he died. Um, but, it, it, again, it's keeping that sense of movement, keeping that sense of there are, there are events in train that are going to come to a culmination. And if the coronation of, of Harold is the point where, as Lisbeth says, he becomes a perjurer, and that's the point you can't step back from, then the, the question of, well, how do you remove Harold, if we're thinking about this from a northern, uh, a Norman perspective, sorry, um, is, well, it's going to end in a battle because that's how you're going to... It's not going to end in, in trial by single combat because William, yes, is, is he's, he's courageous. He's also sensible in some respects. He's not going to risk his life in single combat, whereas, you know, an army, a big battle, the aim of which is probably to remove Harold and then by extension a lot of the the, the ruling class of, of England at the time is going to be the, the culminating bit of, of that part of the tapestry um and I think one of the it's a very effective scene in underlining the chaos and confusion of battle and of war um as well because we get the, the narrative dipping below the margin. So where previously in, in the tapestry, the margin is devoted to things that we might not understand or, you know, Aesop's fables and wonderful birds and so on. By the time we get to the battle, we've got the dead bodies in the margin. We've got looters coming onto the field. It gives a sense of just how horrific um, battle battle was. Um, and I think it was, you know, so Michael and, and others mentioned that... Um, you know, the difference in the sources and, and um, people choosing to stress one thing over another in written accounts. Nobody, there weren't embedded reporters with armies in the 11th century who could sort of stand there and say, well, you know, this is what happened and then this is, you know, there was a fine flight and, and so on and so forth. It, it's really trying to make sense of what must have been a lot of very conflicting eyewitness accounts that were feeding their way into the different narratives. And I think that, the, because we've got this sort of wonderful sort of sense of, of confusion and bloodshed on the on the um, on the tapestry, that really stresses that difficulty in trying to untangle the events of, of battles. And I mean wonderful in the sense, not in the good sense, but in the proper sense of wonderful. Mm. Obviously, no, you're right, don't you? Because you do see that the, the 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 chaos of the battle does come across quite clearly with the tumbling horses and troops going yeah. thither and that and that way. Uh, and as you say, all, all the dead bodies uh, um, so so vividly shown at the base. There, Michael, what's what's your view on on the importance of the of the battle scenes in the in the whole tapestry? One of the things that's kind of fairly 
I suppose most people who kind of view the tapestry probably for the first time are probably quite surprised about is the Battle of Hastings is a relatively small portion of the whole embroidery. Um, the battle is just, you know, like you say, a quarter sort of at the end, obviously. Um, and um, although all of the events sort of build up to that, um, it is it is quite a small part, given that, you know, in all the textbooks and stuff that you look at, it's there's a few key scenes that we've talked about already, but most of the imagery is borrowed from those sort of battle scenes, you know, the death of Harold, the tumbling horses, et cetera, et cetera. But I think one thing for me that is kind of quite striking when we've talked about the kind of chaos of battle is to compare that battle scene against the earlier one of the Breton campaign, where, as Elizabeth says, it's much more of what is typical, I think, of that, that period of time, um, particularly for William, actually, where it's kind of this siege warfare. You're hoping really to avoid bloodshed at any cost. Um, you really want people to capitulate, realise kind of where they've kind of gone wrong, you know, kind of um, beg for forgiveness, if you like, um, and sort things out that sort of way. So whilst we kind of associate these kind of big um, battles, um, you know, slaughters, if you like, with the early medieval period. In fact, they're not that common, actually. I mean, obviously, 1066, you get a kind of grouping of them. Um, but, the, but the Battle of Hastings was obviously a, a very horrific battle. Um, and I think both William and Harold knew they had to nail it here. William couldn't possibly stay on the South Coast indefinitely. Um, he, needed to, um, he needed to get um, to defeat Harold, and he needed to kill Harold, essentially. The, the thing I always find a bit strange about the Battle of Hastings is why... Harold fought that battle himself. You know, why didn't he leave it to others? Because the most catastrophic outcome of that battle wasn't to lose it, but to get killed in it, actually. Um, I mean, if Harold was able to stay in London and and, and rely on his local um, fjord or whatever to, to deal with, with William, that would have been ideal. But of course, the experience of earlier in the year, um, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, um, where Obviously, before that, at the Battle of Fulford Gate, he'd relied on the Northern Earls to deal with the Norwegian threat and, you know, couldn't rely on that. That kind of didn't work. So he had to go up there and deal with it himself. Probably had an impact on Harold, I think, in terms of having to deal with these, these events directly himself. He had to be the person um, leading these armed forces when... In retrospect, and it's easy to say things in retrospect, isn't it? Um, he should have probably left it to someone else to fight William on the South Coast. And if it got really bad, then he could have dealt with him in London. It's time for another quick breather here. Let's take a moment's pause after the full pelt bloody action of the battle scenes that we've just been talking about. So far, we've not really thought that much about the characterisation of the two key players in the tapestry story, Harold and William. So next up, I ask our panel to give their views on how they're shown. You'll note that Lisbeth mentions how Harold killed his brother, Tostig, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. And you might be wondering how we've got so far into the series without mentioning the fact that Harold had to fight that battle in the north of England before coming down to face William at Hastings in the fateful year 1066. The fact is that Stamford Bridge does not feature at all in the tapestry. But don't worry, all is revealed in episode four. Right, so let's return to find out why Harold is portrayed as a doomed tragic hero and why William was certainly a dynamic man of action and also someone who kept an eye on the detail, but not necessarily the nicest chap to know. We also hear a bit more about Bishop Odo, who, who you'll recall we met in episode one as the most likely contender to have been the patron of the tapestry. 
just thinking about about how that leads on to uh, a, a question as we as we move towards the end of this discussion about um, how the two main protagonists in the tapestry are portrayed. So I'm thinking of, of Harold and William. There are other characters um, uh, named in the tapestry. Of course, Edward the Confessor plays plays an important role. But but Harold and William are, are, are the are the two main characters. In my view, that's that's what it's all about. It's about pitching one against the other. Um, and Harold is portrayed. Very interestingly, uh, as is somewhat of a heroic figure in in many respects, someone to be admired um, for his military skills, but someone who does himself a disservice by perjuring himself and then brings brings uh, brings it all on his own head. Um, so, how does how does the portrayal of those two figures um, tally or or diverge from what we see in the other narrative sources? Do you think how how accurate representation of of of, the, of who they are, Elizabeth? What, what what's your what's your take on that? Well, it's very interesting because um, I agree with with everything you uh, you, you say. Um, in the Carmen, in the earliest uh, source, perjury is mentioned, but only very, very fleetingly. And what the author of the Carmen, Guillaume Amiens, is doing is denigrating Harold's character by calling him, for example, an adulterer. So, what is the story of adultery? to do with uh, the Norman conquest of um, of England. Secondly, what the, um, the author of the Carmen does is castigates Harold for fratricide. Harold, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, had killed his brother, Tostig. Now, we know nothing about this if you just look at the biotapestry. Um, so it's interesting that the earliest source picks up on aspects of the story that apparently for a 1067 audience was much more important than um, aspects of the, the biotapestry that we, um, we see uh, now. Whereas if you look at William of Jumiage and William of Poitiers, the elements of perjury and the the just killing of Harold in a battle is obviously the uh, the crux there, and Harold deserves it. Now, why then the designer of the Maya tapestry um, in the preamble to the story of 1066 creates Harold as an heroic figure, and I entirely agree with that, I think that is to make sure that when he falls, he falls far deeper having been portrayed as potentially a good military leader and um, a, a kind man who rescues his fellow soldiers from the quicksand um, of uh, Mont-Saint-Michel uh, Bay. And um, it, it's, a, it's a technique, you know, you, you praise someone to the sky in order then, if he does something stupid, to make him fall far deeper. Sure. Um, and, and Lenny, you're, you're um, a big expert on the Normans. Um, so uh, William William's uh, portrayal in the tapestry is interesting, isn't it? Now, I was chatting to um, Professor Stephen Baxter the other day about his work on Doomsday Book. And one of the things he said to me is that the, the rapidity of the Doomsday survey shows what an excellent organiser, what, what, a, what a, a man of action um william the conqueror should be seen as we kind of see that in a way in the sense of the of the fleet preparations and how quickly he um he gets his uh, his his logistics sorted um is, is that a, is that a theme we should see from the from the tapestry of william as a man of action do you think william is is 
as portrayed on the tapestry, is dynamic, which is something, again, that we, we see in, in the written sources, notably William of Poitiers' um, Deeds of Duke William, his biography of the Duke. Um, going back to that earlier period that William of Poitiers deals with uh, when William was trying to put down various rebellions in Normandy, what a technique that William uses is to um, conflate time. So a lot of things seem to happen at a similar time to um, give credence to the idea you've got somebody who's constantly to and fro in across his duchy, uh, constantly present in various places. Uh, so sieges that might have taken three years get conflated into a much shorter space of time to give a sense of how active, what a great uh, commander he is. Um what, of course, William of Poitiers underplays is, is a great deal of luck and, and assistance that, that William had had from other people. Uh, and you see that, I do think, in, in the tapestry, that, that attention to detail in terms of the preparations, which again is mentioned in, um, in the narrative sources, hints in the uh, depiction of the... Um, the flagship, which, which Lisbeth has written about in, in much more detail, um, with possibly the indication of the papal banner, he's, he hasn't left anything to chance. You know, he sent Frank, if we believe William of Poitiers, to the Pope uh, to put forward his case of why the Pope should support the invasion. So, yeah, so that intentional attention to detail, that planning, that dynamism do come through very, very well. Um, and, and certainly that's something I think you see throughout William's life in, in the other sources as well, that this is somebody who has great attention to detail, who knows what's going on in, in the duchy, in the kingdom, um, and who also has uh, people that he can trust to, to fulfil um, functions um, as well. Um, so his, his half-brothers are uh, depicted on the tapestry, Odo and Robert, but then there were other people subsequently, Landfrank, William Fitzosborne and so on, that are also instrumental in helping him maintain that authority. Um, and so you can compare the, the tapestry with the written sources to under underline the planning and the dynamism and the attention to detail. Sure. If you are looking to present a man whose who's, uh, attention to detail, and that does explain that uh, the, 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 the uh, focus on that otherwise rather prosaic bit where they're loading up the, um, the, mm. the, the mm. ships and, you know, showing how the ships were built and stuff, it's kind of you're only showing that to show that this is a man who's, who's on, top of, on top of his logistics game and is a good administrator, yeah. I suppose. That also comes through in, in if we wanted to think about what we were talking about earlier, the comparison of the tapestry to other sources. It's something that William Poitiers spends a lot of time stressing. Um, and in, in doing that, comparing William's preparations to those of Caesar, uh, in particular, of Caesar's invasion of, of Britain, to demonstrate William's generalship. Oh, and by the way, he was much better than Caesar, says William. Um, Michael, what do you think about the portrayal of, uh, of the two main uh, the two main figures of the tapestry? Well, I mean, they're obviously the two main figures of the Norman Conquest. I mean, I suppose I slightly differ in a way with William in the Bayer Tapestry because I think um, although his hands there um, in terms of the events, you know, overseeing them and, and the detail that you've talked about in terms of the preparation, etc., and the execution of the conquest... I mean, he is a bit of a second part, I think, in some respects, to um, both Odo and Harold, actually. Um, I mean, Odo certainly seems to be a bit more dynamic within the Bayer Tapestry. Um, you know, he takes kind of credit, you, would, you could argue, for some of the things that William probably did him, himself. And obviously, that's why people think that Odo had a hand um, in, in the Bayer Tapestry. I mean, obviously, 
Yeah, I mean, as as um, Elizabeth and Lenny said, I mean, I mean, William was probably not a very nice person at all. Um, and I think, in some ways, to be able to dominate, um, uh, you know, obviously he had a, a a kind of tricky sort of childhood, if you like, and to be able to dominate um, the king, uh, the the duchy, as he did, you know, over those years, and then obviously England afterwards. I mean, he had to do that in a pretty cutthroat, um, horrible sort of way, really. And against that, that kind of sort of makes Harold look a bit nicer, I suppose. But I mean, I guess the reality is that all of these people at that time um, don't get to the places um, where they are without kind of standing um, literally on the shoulders of other people uh, and and crushing them down to, to, to kind of get themselves into the places that they did. I mean, obviously, Harold, I think, was very well admired um, before the Norman Conquest in terms of serving Edward um, in dealing with um, oppression, um, you know, for the, the, the Welsh in particular, um, and also uh, in Northumbria as well, dealing with kind of potential rebellions and threats to the kingdom. He served he served Edward well. And I suppose in some respects, that's probably why the Whitson probably did choose him to be king, um, because they knew that he'd be able to deal with this immediate threat. Um, I think people in England would have rather... Um, had someone of of, of a half Danish background, sort of um, helping them rule the country, than than this um, this Norman guy. But yeah, I mean, I think um, for me, it is a, a it is a story of quite different people. You know, Edward the Confessor, we've kind of not really talked about, um, who's who's always there in the sort of background. And there is even at the the kind of the meal scene, you've kind of got this ghostly figure that looks a bit like Edward. He seems to sort of be there present in the tapestry. He's almost the moral kind of, or the conscience really of um, the moral conscience, I guess, of the of the of the tapestry in a way. Um, the egotistical um, Odo, the sort of well-organized William, and the fairly flamboyant. You know, you could like him, um, Harold, but it kind of all doesn't quite work out for him. There's one thing that we haven't talked about at all, which we should have done, and I've been remiss not to do it. And, and Lena, you mentioned it in the in the battle scene that the fact that, that we've got the margins. Um, and uh, when we think of this as a, as a documentary source, um, so the, the whole narrative of the tapestry for, for listeners is sandwiched between these two upper and lower margins, in which various other things are shown, which are either ancillary to the narrative or or seem to be completely separate to it, or perhaps are talking about it. So you have paired animals, you have uh, scenes of society, uh, sometimes the, the margin disappears and and, and, the, and the, uh, the main freeze flows through. Um, so it's so it's something you you know you don't have a margin like that in uh, in the written narrative sources, I suppose. So how does that um, what how does that help us to to understand things? It, it adds an extra uh, dynamic of complexity to the whole thing, I guess. Um, Lisbeth, what's what's your do you do you have any observations on the margins? I mean, you talked about the fables a bit earlier, I think, didn't you? So. Well, the, the, the fables are usually interpreted as a sort of moral commentary on uh, some of the, the main events that, um, that, that happen. Um, what I'm, in a sense, more interested in is, is some of the very sexually explicit um, scenes that are also embroidered in the, um, in, in the margins. And you cannot but help that that is meant to um, maybe appeal to the audience um, that this is what real life is is like, that this is not an abstract story about government and decision-making in terms of the transition of 
um, of, of governments, but this is people of flesh and blood who engage with life and part of that life is sex. And therefore it is, it is, it is part of the story of life and, uh, and that. And um, I also assume, as others have pointed out, that it is a way of keeping people's attention um, engaged. You know, if you if you walk past the bio tapestry, occasionally perhaps your mind wants to um, think of something else than, <laughs> than just the story that is being presented to you. So it's a bit like us watching television and being interrupted by um, adverts. You know, the brain can cope with compartmentalizing different scenes that you see, and you can still keep the attention to the main story, but occasionally the mind needs a bit of levity to think about other about other things. And there are there are some moments when you think of levity, there are some moments of apparent humor, I suppose. There's the, the two chaps mm. building the castle. This isn't the main three, so you seem to be sort of hitting themselves with space or whatever. Mm. Um, um, so so yeah, that, that's yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Is it Lainey, what what's what, what do you think of the of the margins? Um, the, the margins are, are, are one of those things that I, I dread my students asking me about um, because I find quite a lot of them baffling. Um, I mean, again, as Lisbeth has mentioned about the the references to Aesop fables underlining perhaps the more moralistic aspects um, of the tapestry, but what I find interesting are the scenes of daily life. Um, which sometimes you get a little uh, hint of in the main narrative that the you just mentioned that the two chaps having to fight with the spades while they're, they're building the castles. Um, but those little scenes as somebody ploughing, um, there are, and I, I just think that sort of, to draw on what Lisbeth just said, that helps to connect this sort of big narrative of um, changes in kings, of battles, of, of the nobility and so on, with actually what's going on in wider society and stressing, if you like, the need for good rulership that allow these things to continue. Um, it's no good conquering kingdoms. It's no good establishing rule if you don't then establish the conditions that allow people to flourish, that allow people to grow the food that keeps your your soldiers on the move, that, that helps supply the court, that helps supply the monasteries and so on. So I do think those margins in some respects, I can't explain all of them, and nobody can because some of them are just lost to us, but it does help connect the narrative of of what happened in 1066 with that wider society. Michael, I think um, it's fair to say that you would err against reading too much into into some of the margins, and you would um, you would see them more as decorative in in many in many instances. Yeah, in many instances, I suppose the the most interesting thing in a funny sort of way about the borders is why they're actually there. I mean, why? bother have borders in in the first place and i suppose that then does suggest that they've got a, a sort of purpose like you say in the most part it's these kind of paired animals and paired birds and stuff that seem to sort of peck each other or look a bit kind of curiously to each other etc um and indeed um as we say in the book of course they sort of rack up the tension as you go along you know they start to be quite 
you know, nice pairings that seem to be quite happy with each other. And then they start to get a bit more aggressive as they go on. And 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 as has been as already been said, then you start to get these sort of other additions that pop up sometimes that seem to be particularly relevant to what's going on in the border. So for example, beneath the Afgiva scene, there's the naked guy who's reflecting that of, of the cleric above. Um, and then you get buildings sometimes that kind of pop up and use the the bits of the border. But then, of course, you know, it just kind of completely breaks down when you get to the Battle of Hastings scene because it just floods with all of this death and destruction. And so in some ways, the borders, I think, uh, you know, as, as almost as has been said really already, they just kind of help um, add to that sort of intensity of what's going on in, in the main freeze. Um, to me, they're a little bit like gloss in a way, in a in a kind of a, a manuscript where they're sort of adding a few little details, um, you know, maybe footnotes. We 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 might think of them. So uh, just to kind of remind you that it's getting really kind of chaotic in this battle. We'll just kind of put a few dead heads, uh, dead people, decapitated heads, and all that sort of stuff. And um, and obviously, you know, with the Mont Saint Michel scene, you get this um, this individual kind of sitting on a chair next to Mont Saint Michel, who could be the person who um, was the abbot there at the time. Exactly. Um, so, uh, and you mentioned Elfgiva there, and we've talked about that a bit, but we, I, I don't think we've got time to try and understand that little um, uh, that little vignette in the story, which um, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll have to come back to another time because that is, um, that's so much that's been written on that. Um, just to wrap up then... Um, I wonder if, if you'd like to offer any concluding comments on the on the tapestry, uh, the story it's telling, and uh, and its place as a documentary source within the sort of the pantheon of other documentary sources that we've um, that we've talked about already. Um, so anything we've missed, and any anything you want to any points you want to make, then now's the time to to make them. So, um, Lenny, do you want to go first? And anything you want to offer in to to, to finish us up? Um, I, I just think if we didn't have the tapestry. Um, we would uh, our sources for 1066 would be that much poorer and and also i just sort of want to emphasize the importance of 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 what is a unique source for actually engaging people in the history of of the normans so many people have come to to look at the history of the normans the history of the 11th century because they've had an encounter with with the bio tapestry and it's lived in their memory you know going back to what lisbeth was saying near at the beginning it's vividness um the 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 way that it draws you in. Um, so I think from that that side alone, it's such a tremendously important source to us now. And possibly in, in many respects, a bit like some of our written sources, it's maybe more important to us as 21st century historians than it possibly was uh, to most people in the 11th century who wouldn't have actually had an opportunity to, to see it. So as a way of engaging people and drawing people into history, it's absolutely vital uh, and, and just utterly wonderful. Well, I think, I mean, I'm, I mean I, I'm not a historian, really. Although I did history as my PhD, I'm not a, I'm not a historian. And my way into, obje- uh, into anything, really, is, is through uh, in, a vi- in a visual sort of way. So I'm an archaeologist, essentially, as a day job. Um, and, you know, I've approached the, the tapestry in many ways from an art historical stroke archaeological perspective. Um, so for me, and uh, I think um, Elizabeth and Leonie need to kind of cover their ears at this point, you know, for me, these kind of documentary sources are a bit bland and boring sometimes. You know, they're kind of hard work for me to kind of make sense of. And I find it much, much easier to look at something like the tapestry and kind of gain an appreciation. And I think like Leonie says, really, is that for a lot of people, it's a it's a good way into this period um, and the history um, of the Norman Conquest. And of course, that's one of the reasons why, you know, 
um, if the Bayer Tapestry was to come to this country, it would engage so many people with this period of history that we're so um, excited about. It's so immediate. It's just because it's cartoon-like, essentially. Um, and it's just easy to follow in, in many ways, apart from all of the things we've said already today, the how complicated some aspects of it are. But generally speaking, the thrust of the story is quite easy to get a grasp of. Um, and it lends itself to kind of easy viewing in in many ways. And you can get lost in it, it, it as well. You know, the little kind of characters and what they're up to and and the, the scenes of everyday life and all of that sort of stuff. So like Leone said, without it... Um, our understanding or our appreciation of this this period would be would be much less. Elizabeth, do you want to mount a defence against Michael's bland and boring documentary sources, <laughs> or, or, or say anything else? No, I no no I I agree with him in in particular because the visual story that is being presented to us on the bio tapestry is something that doesn't really mediation. I mean, for a large group of um, the elite in Normandy who were told stories about heroic ancestors and, um, you know, important conquerors, those stories were officially recorded in Latin. The Biotapestry is the only one from the period in the 11th century that is given to us in a visual form that doesn't need clergy to explain what you what you are seeing because everyone as we said before can interpret the te- the narrative as they would um, as they would like um the other thing that i would like to say is that it is of course very much a story of a male world that we see on the bio tapestry um, there are a few scenes with women in them, there's the enigmatic scene of the nun. Um, there is an, um, an, an, an another scene that is not remotely enigmatic, that is the woman who holds a child by the hand who is fleeing a house that is burning. Um, but basically, this is a story about men fighting and men being in uh, disagreeing with one another. Um, and... Uh, Presumably, the audience did did exist of men and women who watched uh, the uh, the scene, and then, of course, uh, sorry, I should say that uh, as uh, Leone uh, explained that, that there is, of course, another woman who is represented in the tapestry, and that is Queen Edith, uh, the wife of Edward uh, the Confessor. But you know, it's only three or three or four, whereas all the other <laughs> um, characters. Are um, are male, and as a, and that reminds us of a world that was very patriarchal and uh, male centered in its visual and written um, presentation of itself. So that brings us to the end of episode three. Thanks to Professor Elizabeth Van Houts, Dr. Lenny Hicks, and Professor Michael Lewis for their insights. Hopefully that's been an interesting guide to what's in the tapestry. Episode four is all about what's not included, which is just as fun, and we'll cover some of the topics mentioned in those closing comments, including Elf Githa and the place of women, so do please come back for that. As a reminder, the book that Michael Lewis and I have written, The Story of the Biotapestry, Unraveling the Norman Conquest, is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021, and we've written a feature on what's missing from the tapestry for the March issue of BBC History magazine. Don't forget to go to historyextra.com too for more great biotapestry content. 
including a fascinating piece by Professor George Garnett on why there are quite so many penises shown in it. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.